This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I think one of the most difficult things that I've ever wrestled with learning about doing is how to be serious, take things serious, without taking myself seriously. We've done away with that verse in our sangha, or I just conveniently forgot that we use it sometimes. I mean, think about that first. Talk about inspiring self-consciousness and fear in the speaker. Pat the Gatha's message, right? And the first day, I, I remember, I, 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 I think it's been about two years since I've sat with you guys. And I miss you. It's always hard for me to come here. Not because it's hard to get here, but because it's hard to leave, you know? And that's the same thing that happens when I leave Finland now. Yeah. I'm perverse. I always miss where I'm not, even while I'm enjoying where I am. And there's a, there's a haiku that, that's one of my favorites. I, I think it's either Isa or Ikkyo. Maybe somebody knows. But it's the one that goes, even while I'm in Kyoto, I long for Kyoto. <laughs> That's, me. That's me. You know, all whenever I have to to give a talk, um, I remember Uchiyama Roshi because I get nervous. You guys know that, right? and uh, I always remember Uchiyama going to his teacher Koto Sawaki and saying. If I study really, really hard and I sit many, many hours and do thousands of prostrations, will I be strong and charismatic like you? And of course, Koto burst that bubble immediately and he said, heck no. Zen is no good for anything like that. And I remember as a very young, in the, uh, in the practice student, reading something Uchiyama wrote. And uh, he was talking about this story. And he had now been a Roshi for quite a while and quite respected. And he talked about how he still got sick to his stomach when he had to do rituals and how nervous he still was. That he was still, and this is his words, not mine. He was still a wimp. And I, uh, I held on to that story in the back of my mind. It's almost hard for me to believe why I'm here. Right? Now, somebody whispered in my ear yesterday, Congratulations, Roshi. 
talking to me? Uh-huh. And someone else today. Not a Roshi yet. <laughs> <laughs> My mirror. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Somebody else said to me this morning, breaking all the rules, right? I won't say who, but said, do you feel any different? (laughs) And, you know, of course, no, I don't. You know, it's the the same. And, And yet, through this practice... And this particular sangha, and this particular flesh and blood teacher, I have found that very often I'm the last one to know when a change has occurred. And it surprises the heck out of me when it happens. And I never know when that's going to happen. And I've been thinking about this a little bit and I realized that one of the greatest changes I've made in my orientation to practice over the years is I'd stop looking for the great drenching of the waterfalls. The astounding experiences. The transcending states of nirvana or bliss or enlightenment. Not to say I haven't had powerful, aha, that's what they were talking about moments in my life. I have. But it has been the change that comes in the midst of whatever's happening in the moment. And I realized I couldn't have done this years ago. When did this change? And for me, my most intimate and challenging and wonderful challenges in life is to be vulnerable and open and finding myself in circumstances where I would have run for the hills before or lashed out in a self-protective anger or rage or have completely collapsed within myself as a hopeless, quivering mass of totally or unworthy jelly of some kind. <laughs> to just to be there and be with what was happening, who I was with, how we were in that moment. When I knew that there was going to be this Dembo ceremony, I don't think I felt a whole lot about it one way or the other. Life was very busy and much like I had experienced when I did my long distance hiking, there was 
this understanding in a sense that I could either walk the trail and see and be and do, or I could write about, but I couldn't do both. And so I don't think I thought much about it at all um, beyond, and again, not that I would not want to share this with you all. You're all very special to my heart. Bob hit the head, uh, the nail on the head in his talk when he said, how tremendously precious this is when we all come together as one heart, one family, one mind, one sangha. But I really wanted to share this with my people, the people I've come to love dearly in Finland, in Sweden. Barry could not travel. And Barry wouldn't let me get out of it when I said, well, we can postpone this. We don't need to do this anytime soon. Right? We can, you yeah. know. No, now, this year. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you recognize that, do you? <laughs> okay, okay. So, anyway, I began to think a little bit about... What do I have to say? What, what can I share? And, uh, you know, I always think I don't have much of anything to share. You all know this anyway already. So what can I tell you that you don't already know, right? You know, if I know it, I'm always the last one to get it. You have to have gotten it first, right? And, of course, I don't want to tell you things that you already know. That's a very irritating quality in people to do that, right? To tell people what they already know. But I did think about it. And I remembered a koan that Barry had talked about in one transmission ceremony of, of one sort or another. This koan about Bodhidharma and his students that inherited the flesh, the skin, the bone, and the marrow. I thought, ah, I'll talk about that. I have something to say about that. And of course, just like you did in the Denkai talk, you talked about it first. <laughs> just stole my thunder, right? You know. But you know what's different? Is that in the Denkai talk, I thought it mattered. I thought I had to come up with something else and be original. And you know, this time, I didn't feel like that. You know, I just laughed. You know, our, eye to, I, our eyebrows are entangled and we glare at each other eyeball to eyeball. So how can we not be in sync, right? And think the same stuff. So I did stop and start thinking about what can I talk about? What would people want to hear about? What do they want to know? And because we're in silence, I can't go around taking a poll. What would you like to hear? What would you like to know about? But then Barry talked about in that same talk, about how he felt like Henry James Sr. And how Henry James Sr. wasn't talked about anymore, wasn't read anymore. And if he was remembered at all, he was remembered for only being the father of Henry and William. 
And that got me to thinking about how we mystify this whole process and how we make something special out of all kinds of things. And my mind, of course, gravitated immediately to the koans. These things that take on this magical, mystical quality. Koans. And what are they really? Koan means public case. It's a recorded bit of conversation that occurred between two students, rarely, between a student and a master, more common. And every once in a while between master and master. Where something was said that went, ah, kind of, and they were written down. We have a wonderful, wonderful verse in our four practice principles. And I think it's what hooked me in Ordinary Mind first. And it continues to hook me every time we say it. Life as it is, the only teacher. And what are we if not life? each and every one of us. And each of us puts out there the teachings all the time, every minute, whether we know it or not. Think of we men, this uneducated peasant overheard the Diamond Sutra. It wasn't intended for him at all. And that overhearing of that unintentional teaching led to the Sixth Patriarch. And to us. To us. So I thought... I would talk a little bit about my master and the turning words he has shared with me. Our journey as teacher and student, master and disciple, and all the teachings. Oh, I can't begin with all the teachings, right? I mean, even talking about this is like trying to give you, show you the ocean in a cup, right? Mm. So I'm going to pick some highlights. They were important to me. They may not have been important to him at all. Right? I remember a story that he told me one time about Joko and him. About how he had gone to see, correct me if I'm wrong, how he had gone to see Choco. And, you know, Barry made these 3,000-mile treks across the country to go see Choco. My little five, 800 miles down from Maine isn't much. 500 miles. Anyway, he went to see her, and she was getting old. 
hit him that this might be the last time that he saw her or one of the last times and I think he actually got choked up or maybe I'm projecting that into the story (laughs) and he told her this and Joko looked back and she said well I don't care if I ever see you again at all (laughs) what's important is that the Dharma goes on (laughs) and you were all witness to that last night Uh, right? (laughs) Don't let it die out, right? Turning phrases. Things that change our insides. The first teaching that Barry ever gave me, he gave me before I even knew who he was. He had no clue that I existed. Right? And even if you had told me his name, it wouldn't have meant a damn thing to me at all. This was back in 2004, 2005, something like this, at the AZTA meetings, American Zen Teachers Association meetings. I was this little center mouse, kitchen mouse. I was living at the Vermont Zen Center at that time. And uh, uh, we were really, really excited because all of these icons of American Zen were coming to the center for their meetings. And uh, I was on the kitchen crew, right? And we, we got the house prepared, and, you know, we did all these cooking. And, and, and we, were, we were going to be able to get to sit with them, which was really important to us. And we were going to get to hear some of the talks. Right? And this was just going to be wonderful. And all of these people rustled in, you know. Very nice, don't get me wrong. Remember, I'm a star-struck Zen student. You know, and all my Hollywood stars of, of Zen, you know, coming into to the to this <laughs> this this house. All right. So anyway, let's cut to the the chase here. All right. So they're all in, and we're going to have our first morning of zazen together. And of course, we let all of the Zen masters go in first, of course, right. And then we came and sat down. And I noticed as I come into the room and sit, right, as I look around, here are all these people in these beautiful robes, blue and black and green and brown and all these different things. And here's this one gawky-looking guy (laughs) sitting. I even remember where you were sitting, exactly. (laughs) In a black shirt and black pants. And I had the warmest feeling I'd ever had, which was, oh my God, Zen masters can forget their robes too. (laughs) This was step one in debunking the myth of the the perfection of Zen masters. So anyway, we, we continued on in that weekend, and, and somewhere towards the end of that, I finally, you know, we finally, you know how hard we worked? We got up at 5 o'clock, we were in the kitchen at 5 o'clock in the morning, we cooked nonstop, served, did dishes, and finished at 11 o'clock at night. You didn't deserve that. <laughs> we loved it, don't get me wrong, we loved it. And we all loved to collapse on the floor at the end of the day. After we put after we put you guys all to bed. Yeah. And we just had our own little what what would you call it? it wasn't Zazen exactly, but it was warmth. 
Okay, so it was wonderful taking care of these guys. But anyway, somewhere along that weekend, I, I, I went, did you see that guy? He forgot his robes. <laughs> Isn't that cool? You know? And uh, this person quickly disabused me of that, and they said, and I don't remember if they were admir admiring him or sarcastic or, you know, whatever, disparaging, but they said to me, oh, no, 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 that's Barry Manchet. He never wears robes. <laughs> so shock number one was Zen masters can be human. Shock number two is that somebody actually chose to be different. And even though Barry is gawky and unassuming, there is, as you know, this something about him. And I recognized, even at that distance, right, that this wasn't being different for different sake. This was just this person being who he was. And as I digested that over the years, <clears throat> all those people sitting in there were just being who they were at that moment and how they were. But it took the oddball, the person that stood out, for me to begin to get that teaching. Okay? To begin to get that teaching. I finally began to get to know who Barry was. Again, not connected to this. I had forgotten that his name was Barry Magic. He didn't mean anything to me. You know, I was deep into uh, the capital tradition at that time and had come out of the Korean tradition. <clears throat> but one of the reasons I decided to talk about this today is because I'm going to be a thief now. I'm going to steal your story about Bodhidharma and Eka. Because this is very much our story. Bodhidharma was just Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma did and came and did what he did and he sat and faced the wall and that's who he was. And that's what he did. And, you know, we don't know. I mean, I, I was trained as a, as a psychologist and one of the things that I learned to do very early on, which has served me very well and I continue to do it, is, you know, whenever there is a dream, and experience a story is to take myself and put myself in the place of each and every participant in that story or object to begin to understand a little bit of that. And <clears throat> so when I put myself in, in, in Bodhidharma's place facing the wall, you know, I can I can envision a lot of different Bodhidharmas. I can envision the curmudgeon of go away, don't leave me alone, don't bother me. I can envision the curmudgeon morphing into kind of a despairing, nobody will ever get it except me. I can morph him into somebody that's oblivious to what's going on around him. And I can morph my, him into someone who's uncomfortable with people. 
and how to be with them or how to recognize what's going on with them. I can morph them in a lot of different ways. And so Barry <clears throat> was just being Barry. And my teacher at that time was just being who they were. And I was bleeding to death all over the snow. Um, I have this really strange duality. I mean, I got lots of them, but you know, <laughs> this particular one is really kind of interesting. Uh, it's it's this um, um, piece of me that is uh, terrified of people. I know that I'm going to get hurt. I know that I'm going to be disappointed. I know that I'm going to be devastated. I know. I know. I know. Right. And this other part of me that wants to start singing, the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Da, da, da. <laughs> because there has been, there was, all my life up until this point, a part of me that just knew that the life as I had experienced it up to that point wasn't all there was. That that it was out there, that, that it existed, this, this wholeness, this happiness, this contentment, this, this belongingness, if you will. And it's just right around the next corner. And that belief, I think, <clears throat> fantasy as it was in a sense, uh, kept me alive and kept me sane and kept me trying and working and exploring and doing things for many, many years. And it was um, also something that kept me blind, of course, to what was right here, right now, this moment. Because I didn't have anybody to help me understand that it was this moment that counted. Um, all of it, everything. So, anyway, um, for those of you who are psychologists, I'd done a lot of work. I had done a lot of, you know... Um, um, learning and practice and all this other stuff, and I had gotten myself a lot of partial resolutions, right? You know, I was no longer being driven, you know, screaming madly into the night by pain. Okay, so I didn't have to do that anymore. But life wasn't really great either. You know, it really wasn't wonderful either. It was okay. And, of course, anytime there was a big crisis in my life, I get plunged right back into this old place. And this is what happened right before I came to this particular Zen center. Um, the, the, the world had dropped out from underneath me once again. Right? And I had been plunged back into this, what I kind of thought and was afraid of and really didn't want to be true, that this was my true self, this depressed despairing, negative, scared, terrified person. And the training I'd had up to that point, and I am grateful truly to all of my teachers, um, had gotten me to a place where it was like, okay, <clears throat> I know how to claw my way out of here. You know, new relationship, new job, new project, I mean, I'd even gone as far as to go to a new country, a new culture at times, to do this, right? And I knew how to do that, but I also had grown up enough that I realized at one level that 
that was just going to take me back to the same place that I'd always been. And I was running out of little sunny sunshine because now I'm in my 50s. I don't have much future left. Maybe it's all passed me by. Maybe it's too late. But I certainly wasn't believing that's around any other corner. And Zen had become a very important part of my life at that point. Whatever stability that I had, whatever centeredness I could claw my way to, had come about really through this practice. Psychology had helped me understand, but the butt on the cushion had helped me begin to embody this. So I made the decision. I wasn't, in, in effect, I wasn't going to get up off the cushion until. And I really can't tell you what that until was. Um, you know, until I got it, till I understood, till I died, it didn't really matter. But I just wasn't going to do it anymore. And that's where I went. That's the mind, state of mind I went to when I went to this Zen Center. And um, I did the equivalent of what Eka did when he cut off his arm. I cut off everything that I knew. I, I went and said, you know, I mean, deep in myself, everything I've done, everything I've tried, every road I've followed, every path, every skill, everything has not helped in this really basic matter. I'm going to take all of that, all of me, all of my ideas, all of my beliefs, everything, and I am going to put it over here, and I'm done with it. And this was so unfair to the teacher that I basically went, you tell me how to live my life. You save me. You make me into a human being. And that's where I went. And as the cards were dealt out, right, you know, I was in a Zen center that had a size for a shoe, and I'm a size seven foot. It did not fit. It did not fit. And one of the, the, the most frustrating things that, that I dealt with it there is that I could see the genuine caring and compassion and the inability for us to touch in any way. That teacher sat with all the best intents in the world and stared at the wall. And when I cut off my arm, they sat and stared at the wall and stopped saying this and said, stop trying to draw attention to yourself. About this time, and I, you guys have heard me say this a million times, but I was, you know, beginning to hear these thoughts in my mind when I woke up. Then there's no reason to live. There's no sense to it. 
And luckily, again, all that I had been given to that point and all the practice I had done to that point also said, well, if there's no reason to live, then there's no reason to not live. And we'd go through another day of gutting it out, white-knuckling it, just surviving. About this time... I was uh, doing a lot of reading and I, I was surfing the net and I found this book called Ordinary Mind. Now, a funny quirk of fate is I had always been interested in Jill Kobach. I, I have gone through two copies of her hard cop, uh, hardcover books so far. And if you go back and you see it, read through any of them, you'll see red underlining, pink, green, yellow, blue ink, black ink, you know, pencil, all of this stuff, right? And when I moved to Costa Rica uh, back in 1998 and left my Korean sangha, um, I I, I wrote uh, out to to Joko. And Elizabeth Hamilton wrote me back. And she said, you know, Joko's very sick. She's not taking any students. But if you'd like, you know, you and I can talk. And we started to. And uh, she offered me phone dokusan, which was great. Uh, but very, very expensive from Costa Rica, you know. <laughs> and about that time, that's when I found out there was this capital organization in San Jose, you know, and there was a flesh and blood teacher that came down four times a year in the country, 30 bucks to and from, long-distance phone calls, hundreds of dollars at a time. Okay, and I went that way, all right. So anyway, when I found out there was this book, and he was a Dharma heir of Jokobak. I thought, oh, well, this is cool. I'll read this. And I was very, very interested because he was a psychoanalyst, and he was breaking, when I found out, the first cardinal rule of being a psychotherapist, which is no dual relationships. And here he was, acting as a Zen teacher, and a psychoanalyst at the same time. It's like, how do you do that? So, um, I don't know why. I mean, that's the the surface story. I had never written an author before in my life. And I have never written an author since then. Again, there was something in those words, which, of course, came alive again, fresh, as they were read. Right? That... I don't know. Hooked me, right? And I wrote him and said, how do you do that? How do you combine these two things? Right? Very professional. And he wrote back. And I don't remember what he said, you know. Uh, But I do remember at the end of the the, uh, letter, he invited me to continue to correspond with him. Well, for those of you who know me, well, you know that my emotions are right there on the surface. And so very quickly it got personal for me. And I began to write him. And, and, I, and I, I didn't understand what was happening, right? I, I, I just knew that I felt different. Um, I remember writing him. Uh, again, you, you, you don't remember this, but I wrote him about how 
my life at that moment, I felt like this deer frozen in the headlights of an oncoming 18-wheeler, unable to move, unable to feel, unable to do anything. And what he wrote back, I knew he knew what I was talking about and that he saw me bleeding on the snow, although I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that. Another turning word. And you're breaking the rules. You gave me permission to break my internal rules of don't ask, don't complain, don't want. Don't get visible. And I got visible with Barry, and uh, we've been working with that ever since. How are we doing time? I transmitted a lot to these two, but not brevity. You know, I realized, I asked myself why I talk so much, you know. And I realized two things. There's one, I'm a hyper-vigilant, you know, child of a dysfunctional family. I want to make sure that you really understand what I'm saying, that you do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Right? And then there's something else that's much more mundane. And that is, um, I, I taught university for years, and I was a psychotherapist for years, and... 50 minute hours. <laughs> what time did we begin this? 50 minutes ago. Okay. God, I haven't gotten even 10%. Okay. All right, let me let me finish up then with this. You know. I'll I'll fast forward through all of it until just a few days ago. And um I started getting, again, nervous about, you know, doing this whole thing and, and giving this talk and everything. And I found myself, it's like I kind of listened in on myself, saying, you're just Karen. You're Karen. I'm Karen. And that was a comfort. That would have set me screaming before, because I, I'm Karen. Oh, my God, I'm bad. I'm terrible. I'm horrible. I can't let you see that. Or I can't even know that, right? But, but, but that was where it was. You know, we talk about how there's nothing to give and nothing to receive, nothing to gain. Right? This relationship gave me me. Um, me in all its myriad forms. Right? And I love you. Very much. I love you since before I knew you. And I love you since before my parents were born. (laughs) Keep up the good work.